the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Liz, you had such a unique situation throughout this. If you could nutshell it for people, what you were doing, how your husband was involved, you go, you you tell it very well in the in the book. But for our listeners to understand just how, again, unique your situation was, this is quite a confluence of professions and of people on this at this particular moment. So, again, explain that what your role was at WCCO TV, what your husband was doing and how you two were sort of bouncing information off each other as this was going on. Yeah, I think to even back up a little bit more, being a Minnesota native, I grew up in Worthington, Minnesota, dreamed of being on the news, Michelle. That's, uh, I know our stories are, are a little similar in, in that way, you know, a kid with a dream, right? So I chased it all across the country and landed my dream job at WCCO uh, back in 2008, where I kind of worked my way up from being a cub reporter and and held an anchor position. I was the weekend anchor for for 12 years there. By the time this incident uh, happened, I'd go on to spend a couple more years um, after that uh, at at the station. But I was the the main fill-in anchor. I was a familiar face uh, with with the station. And this really changed everything for me um, with my professional role. Bob and I had been married for a couple years at this time. When this happened, he was the president um, of the, the police union representing at that time um, nearly 900 police officers in Minneapolis. We know now, sadly, there's about uh, half that um, because of the lies that were told uh, due to this incident. Um, and I was, yes, yeah, sidelined from my anchor position. I would never anchor another show at WCCO again. Um, and in fact, I couldn't report on basically anything anymore beyond uh, COVID. Um, that was sort of my 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 beat for a couple of years, uh, if you will, to to um, fo- follow that, but it really changed everything. How, how were you told, how were you informed that you were being sidelined from this story? And as you said, so many others, when you had spent so much time at WCCO TV. Well, um, I, it wasn't really told outright. I think that, uh, management was, was kind of gauging the, the waters, if you will. But, um, we had a, a couple high profile protests at our house. Uh, there was one at the television station during the, the six o'clock news. This is really when I think we let the mob basically take over Minnesota with no questions asked. I say that journalists turned into activists, including in my, my newsroom, uh, where I saw it firsthand and no questions were asked. There was no critical thinking, no, no common sense. And um, I was always a, a proponent of of the police as far as I, I understood the job a bit, not only being married to a police officer, but I took time to, to be in a citizen's academy. And this is a this is a, a, a story that, you know, a, a lot of these uh, different high profile incidents um, I understood as far as the, the release of body camera footage or different uh, 
training, et cetera. So I was always a kind of a voice to go to in, in the newsroom, uh, but it became clear very quickly uh, that my voice was not wanted um, in this. You know that this basically became about race from the very beginning because a white police officer interacted with a, a, a black man during, a, during an arrest. Um, and I was really troubled by that narrative uh, from the start because I know that um, that there were going to be some consequences and, you know, it was career suicide in a way if you would, would speak out uh, against that narrative, which the media helped to push. Right. Uh, and it certainly, um, certainly was for a lot of people. Anyone who tried to speak or even question any of the reaction was immediately called a name and people became very, very afraid of being labeled. And the protests at your house and at the station, obviously at the station, they were protesting you. Was it simply because you were married to the president of the, the uh, Minnesota or Minneapolis Police Union? Well, ironically, um, many of the protests brought up the fact that I was white um, and had blonde hair and, you know, all the things that sounded quite racist to me, uh, to, to be honest. But um, it was mostly due to, to my marriage. Um, I was accused of being the master manipulator of news uh, in the Twin Cities. But But more than anything, when I talk about the mob, um, you know, th these were people that didn't even know my name, really. You know, they were demanding Liz Collins resign. Uh, these are not <laughs> WCCO viewers, but they go on Twitter and not only, you know, threaten your job, but but threaten your life. And I, and I feel that uh, the station where I worked gave in to the mob um, because that's, you know, what happened, especially that summer. And I think that that continues uh, to this day in a bit. Um, but it, it kind of helped me find my voice and, and, and leave. And also just, just to be able to expose, I think, um, the people that w were responsible from, from the very start. Um, this is a, a police chief, uh, a mayor uh, of Minneapolis. The governor played a role. Of course, Keith Ellison, uh, the attorney general of Minnesota. They were just kind of the perfect people in the perfect positions for this to play out in Minnesota. And the consequences have been felt across the country. It was almost difficult to read some of this book, and I had been warned, but it's it, it's so compelling, and it's it's so important to read the stories of these people who were in the police precinct, who were told to leave, who were looking for leadership, who got none. How did you find people who were so willing to talk to you about what went on that day, and and why do you think people wanted to tell their story? I think from from the start again, that these were voices that were silenced. Uh, and I wanted to go back to them because they had stories to tell. Uh, they had truth to be told. Um, and these were officers. I, I agree with you. I think that that was the most difficult part with doing some of those interviews uh, with those officers. So, the, so these are uh, you know, cops who've served decades uh, in Minneapolis at, at that point, and they're basically told in the middle of an afternoon to pack up their belongings from the third precinct because they're planning to surrender it to protesters. And, you know, the, these officers are telling me they all thought it was a joke at the time. Who thought this was because actually they, they, they actually were being told the, the word surrender was legitimate, right? They were going to like give it up as almost a symbolic gesture. Yeah, this was some sort of prize. And they thought that the protesters would stop. At that point, nobody really took it seriously. But then as the the hours pass and a, a city bus pulls up to collect their belongings, uh, you know, they know it's it's time for, for them to get their get their stuff. Uh, but then they then they proceed to stay there for, for several hours uh, before the, the call is made uh, to get them out of there. And then I, I think this is a, 
a pretty eye-opening part of the book as well that the city bus comes to collect their belongings, basically pulls up to the door. But when the actual officers, uh, these men and women, are, are told to evacuate, the city bus pulls up a half mile away. So they're forced to uh, to run for their lives, essentially, um, through this angry mob as as things are being thrown at them. We talked to an officer who loses his teeth uh, during during the protests um, and. The, the bus is actually even late to pick them up um, after this planned uh, surrender. And, and they believe that this was going to be some sort of reparation that city leaders had set up, that if the protesters, you know, wouldn't wouldn't kill a police officer, uh, but but hurt one of them, uh, that, that, that they would also be happy. It's really completely disgusting. And almost like about it. almost like evening the score. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Oh, my and and again, I think that was one of the most difficult parts for those of us who live in Minnesota and close to Minneapolis or right around Minneapolis and we're watching all of this develop. I couldn't believe my eyes when these all these cars and, you know, police officers were speeding out of this precinct and letting it go and saying it's yours and we're not going to stay to protect it. It was such a it seemed like such a cowardly move. And. At all this time, it, it, it seemed to me that there was no one from leadership really to be heard. Everything seemed to be going on behind the scenes and no one was coming out and trying to quell any of the violence. What were what, what were the overriding messages you heard from the police as far as where was the leadership? I think that that's the question they asked themselves again and again, Michelle. Um, they, they were very candid about that. Um, they they never even saw in, in many cases any administration at all uh, from the police department. They never saw the mayor, um, and and so they talked very candidly about that. And and many officers even after the riots, they're saying, okay, well we we understand that you know Minnesota's never seen anything like this. Minneapolis has never seen anything like this. We're going to just um, you know stay stay on the job. Um, but then they quickly realized that even after the riots, um, these attitudes that that city leaders basically helped the public develop because of this narrative they're they're pushing. They they re- realized that you know attitudes um, ha- have changed uh, towards them. And so one officer even talks about how he can't even find um, somebody from administration to basically say that he he's quitting the job. Um, you know, after 25 plus years, they can't even find someone to 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 say. Uh, you know, I'm I'm done with this because they've all just just disappeared. And this is also in the in the book uh, where where we talk about this um, kind of coordinated PR approach um, that that's happening. And a week later, um, we have the the police chief saying that he is pulling out of contract negotiations with the union. You know, basically blaming Bob and and the board, if you will. And it it was kind of because the, the the riots were such a failure that they needed someone to pin to pin this all on and they decided the union would be um, you know what they would would go after and I think that that was a, a, a clear message um, and and helped to pave the way with what we what we see in the you know ensuing chaos that it, that has happened since the defund the police movement I can think of Baltimore and Minneapolis where I heard those messages very clearly. And it wasn't just from the protesters. It was from politicians. It was from leaders. It was reimagine the police. It was all of these things that suddenly, overnight, there was this incident that was horrific. And we no longer needed the police. 
when in fact, I, I think we need the police more than ever. Where do you think right now the Minneapolis Police Department is in terms of its footing and in terms of this fight against defunding? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, I've already talked about the just manpower numbers, right? They're basically yeah. been, been cut cut in half, 40 to, to 50% fewer officers. And they've brought in uh, a couple new high-profile positions, including a new new police chief, but also this uh, commissioner of public safety. Um, but these are administrative jobs. You know, these are manager jobs. They don't have any street cops uh, anymore because <laughs> there's nobody who wants to, to sign up for this. Uh, you know, Bob talks about when he, he was you know, an officer from 30 years ago, there'd be eight or 900 people that would sign up for just a few positions. Well, now they, they struggle to even get single digits um, to, to sign up for many open positions uh, that they have now. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, do you, do you see light at the end of the tunnel? And a lot of these officers said no, um, you know, 10, 15 years really from turning things around as far as a, a police department is concerned. But you're absolutely right about the politicians pushing this message from the beginning. And, you know, I talk a little bit about that in the book, too. This is 2020. And, you know, they're trying to oust President Trump back then um, at all costs. And, and this, I, th I think, um, you know, that can't be understated as far as the political leaders who decided uh, to, to use what happened in, in Minneapolis to do so. You you mentioned that immediately race became the issue in this event, that it was a white police officer and a, a black man who was killed. What do you think today? Here we are more than well over two years beyond and out of this, and you've got a, a unique viewpoint and you've interviewed so many people about this. What do you think really happened there? I mean, it, it's the the video is hard to stomach. I've made myself watch it once or twice. I don't know if I've watched the entire thing more than once, but I've watched I've certainly watched it in its entirety at least once and portions thereof. And I find it really difficult, really difficult to watch on so many levels. What what do you think happened? And do you think that Derek Chauvin is paying the correct penalty? Well, I think that, you know, you can't watch this video and think anything but it. It is horrific. It's it's difficult to watch, um, of course. And and I know you're probably talking about the, the Facebook video. So there's this Facebook yeah. video, of course, that go that goes viral, uh, Michelle, um, eight, eight or nine minutes worth. Um, but then there's, you know, 15 minutes of backstory that we learn about later, months later on body camera footage. Uh, so in the book, um, you know, I talk a, a lot about the, the lies and lies by omission, one being the fact that the body cameras are are withheld. That's never happened in a, a Minneapolis uh, police incident before. The reason these officers have body cameras is for transparency. Well, the, the body cameras show different different angles. Um, we later learn even that the chief himself admits that uh, he sees Derek Chauvin's knee more on George Floyd's shoulder blade. Uh, not his neck. Uh, so that narrative that was told from the beginning um, was a lie. Also, there are other officers involved, which we didn't really know about, if you remember. Um, from, the, from the early days, we have uh, Tutau, who's Hmong American. Uh, we have J. J. Alexander King, who is a, a black officer. Um, so this is being told from the very beginning that this is 
racist. Well, these are two groups of mixed race officers uh, that arrive on scene. They're they're called there, uh, being the the rookie cops being called first, and and uh, Derek Chauvin and Tutal basically show up to to help because they're struggling for so long because George Floyd uh, will not comply. George Floyd uh, says on the the body camera footage that he can't breathe long before Derek Chauvin even arrives on on scene. Uh, he never says to Derek Chauvin, "Get off me," or uh, there, there's nothing uh, along those lines. And what's also interesting is the Minneapolis Police Department is is answering questions, um, but they're not doing so. Truthfully, they say right away that this is not a part of training. They've never seen this maneuver before. They even testified to that on the stand. Well, it's interesting that the the training manual, those pages of this MRT training, this maximum restraint technique, which officers do use as part of training, disappears online uh, for weeks after this happens. And I'm a a reporter at the time going, are we going to do a story about this? This seems really, I've just never seen something like this. I was, again, very troubled by by so many things, but a lot of these disappearing facts bothered me uh, the most. And and the media just was fine to go ahead and and push the, the racist narrative. And I really felt that that was poisoning the, the public and especially, uh, you know, poisoning attitudes toward, toward policing. And it, it, it bothered me uh, as a journalist, uh, as a mom, uh, you know, as the wife of a, of a police officer. And I think some of the, that damage can't be reversed at this point. It's, it's amazing. Um, I guess of all the interviews that you did, because again, reading through them, you feel, you feel so clearly the pain and frustration and rage and confusion and, and, and just absolute almost, you get the feeling that these police officers just felt deserted just felt completely let down. Um, which of the interviews compelled you the most? Which one really moved you the most? Yeah, I think talking to, to the officers, um, you know, that were involved with the, the third precinct, uh, certainly. Uh, but there's a, also an interview with Sam Belcourt. Um, this is a longtime uh, Army veteran. She served all across uh the world, uh, essentially, including two tours in Iraq. And she never thought something like this would happen on American soil. Um, and I think that that, that interview really resonated. Um, this is someone who lived to be a, a police officer, but not only that, but lived, lived to serve. Um, and, and she's someone now who has kind of started her own business and, you know, runs a food tr- truck with her her wife in another state, and they they actually get sick to their stomach even even going around uh, Minneapolis when they when they do uh, come back. And I think there are a lot of stories like that. Minneapolis, in many ways, lost the the best of of the best. These aren't officers; they weren't some occupying force in Minneapolis. Uh, they cared about the businesses, they cared about the people, and and having to to hear about those days where they're apologizing to basically everyone for having their property destroyed. Um, they're, they're talking about having to watch buildings burn down because they have no um, authorization to make any arrests at all. Um, you know, I really don't think that the, the full story about the riots ha- has been told uh, correctly. And we see that the media quickly moves on. You know how it works, right, Michelle? You just yeah. move on, move on to the next um, the next thing. And I, I just don't think that the that the story w- was told um, factually. Um, uh, you know, about the riots, about this incident, and the media quickly, you know, took the spotlight elsewhere. How much pushback pushback have you received 
in terms of, oh, well, listen, you, you can't see straight with this because you're married to a police officer who was intimately involved in a lot of these conversations and therefore you're biased. And so you can't write this story um, objectively. Have you how much of that have you received? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the Twitter trolls uh, come out here and there. But I will say more than anything, there has been 100 percent, 99.9 percent, maybe I should say, uh, support. People are thanking me for, for speaking up. People knew that there was more that they were than they were being told. Um, and I've actually heard from a, a couple people on the left. And in the left, I talk about this. The left isn't Democrats or, or liberals. The left is this population of people. Um, that they don't want you canceled, they want you killed. And you can't think any differently um, <laughs> than them, or you know, you can't even have a, a conversation. I don't really think there's that many people like that uh, in Minnesota. I still think you know, we're a smart, a smart group of, of uh, hardworking uh, folks and, and such. But I, I can't tell you, I mean, I've received um, emails, not only all across the state, but even across the country um, at this point, people who knew something really wasn't right and, and thanking me uh, for coming forward to put that in print. Do you think that the verdict for Derek Chauvin was the correct one? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we have a, a whole section in the book um, talking about the trial. So he's found guilty, right, on these three three charges. So he has to be guilty. These other officers, they plead guilty. So they're they're guilty. Um, but I think it's it's quite eye opening to see the manipulation happening uh, be behind the scenes, even in the courtroom. Uh, Keith Ellison's past, I think, plays a, a huge role in this case. He's now put five police officers in prison. Uh, he has uh, made his career on hating police. Um, we, we have a very interesting story about just an arrest that was made in 2019 about one of his uh, high-profile associates, a longtime uh, gang member, and how he kind of has the uh, get-out-of-prison free card um, with him, uh, Keith Ellison's business card. Um, but I, I think that um, I, I ask people to, to read that section if that's if that's what they think. And I and um, just even for everything from the jury instructions, uh, 14 pages worth of jury instructions. That's never happened before. Um, the way that uh, the prosecution in this case takes up two floors of the Hennepin County courtroom. That's never happened before. Uh, also, we have jurors who talk to the judge about they want off this case because they've been told by their employers um, if they find uh, Derek Chauvin not guilty, they'll be fired. Uh, so we see the, the mob mentality also rule the day uh, when it comes to this uh, court case as well. And I've been in touch um, with Derek, uh, his mother, and also the other officers and, and their families too, and they all have very interesting, um, you, you know, stories to tell. That the police chief never reached out to them. He never even really wanted to know the truth. Um, he he never talked to them once um, after after this incident. And and these two rookie officers, they were his recruits, um, <laughs> and he, he had you know a, a relationship with both of them, but never talked to them again. In talking to Derek Chauvin, um, what is that like? Yeah, I think that um, Derek has has been described by by those who know him and his mom too. He's a very by the book, um, robotic type of officer, if that if that makes sense. But knows the the manuals really well, the the training really well. Um, and what's interesting about this MRT training is that. Um, they recognize that something is happening with with George Floyd. They they understand he's he's not truthful in the fact that he they ask him if he's you know taking drugs. He said he says no. Um, so they are going to put what's called the the hobble on him. Uh, this strap that basically connects um, his 
his ankles to his waist, but they decide they're trying to, if you listen again to, to the body cameras, which, which were hidden, um, and I feel like the police chief and the mayor could have talked about you know, the conversations these officers were hap- having just to explain more context and what was transpiring, uh, but, they, but they did not. Uh, but he's talking about um, downgrading the, the, the force. They're trying to get the ambulance there sooner. We know the ambulance now basically took its time and staged in another location because they're worried about the crowd. Uh, they don't put this hobble strap on, um, so they're downgrading force. And in the manual, it basically says that um, if the hobble strap is used, then they should roll over into the side recovery position. But it doesn't actually say what to do if the hobble strap is not used. Um, so again, just going by this, by the book, um, he's not, he, he, he's not a racist. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say that from, from the very beginning. Um, and that, that I think is what bothered his, his mom the most. Um, you know, he's married, was married to an Asian woman. Um, he said many interactions that he's just not the, the, the monster he was, he was made out to be, uh, by the media, especially. And, and he's same, same with these other officers, as well. Thomas Lane volunteered his time uh, working with Somali children in a a youth camp because he wanted this job um, so badly with MPD. This was his dream job. And we talk about the text he was showing or shared with his wife just a a week prior to this incident. Um, And, you know, he was thought he was, you know, he signed up to make a difference and to to help people. And then to be painted, you know, as this racist, evil uh, monster is is certainly not uh, who he is either. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.